my name's Michael Binsky, and uh, I, I have something called Jazz Artist Management. I hope you can excuse me. I'm a little nervous tonight because normally I just bring jazz groups into Baltimore. I have been for 35 years, uh, some of the greatest musicians that ever lived. And uh, all that I usually have to do is just say, ladies and gentlemen, how about a round of applause for? But in this case tonight, this is, uh, this is a little more important to me because I'm here with, uh, with a man that has been a major force in the evolution of the jazz culture. I find myself in awe of him whenever I'm around him. Uh, Jimmy's here tonight to talk about his just-released autobiography, I Walked with Giants. And the first thing that caught my eye about the book is a photograph that's in it where uh, Jimmy is conducting his orchestra from 19, in 1947. And uh, in the saxophone <laughs> section is an alto player, and his name is John Coltrane. Standing in front of the band taking a solo is none other than Charlie Parker. And that's what I said. Wow. That's what I say, too. Wow. <laughs> uh, th and this photo just represents just one, one night, one concert, and uh, a very remarkable career and a very remarkable string of accomplishments that Jimmy has had. Uh, Jimmy's been on the forefront of jazz since uh, he and some of his friends created it. And that's true because he's one of the guys that created this music that I have since devoted my life to, so it's very important to me. His saxophone playing is uh, unmistakable. The tone and the style of Jimmy Heath is unmistakable in just a few notes. and. Uh, you know, it's something like, uh, when you hear Charlie Rouse or Clifford Jordan, people like that, you can know immediately who it is. And the same thing goes for Jimmy Heath. Uh, his sound is all his own. Uh, Jimmy loves playing and writing music. He also has a love for words. And the way he can do things with words, he's just as great as what he does, does with music. And you know, all the musicians, all the people in the world I know when they speak of Jimmy Heath, they talk about how clever and funny he is, and his brother Tootie, too. It's, they're great to be around. I, uh, my wife and I made a trip on a uh, jazz cruise, and that was uh, one of the greatest moments in my life, I know that. And just listening to them in the lounge telling stories was uh, just as good as hearing them play. Uh, He's as close to genius as anybody I've ever met. Uh, Jimmy and his brother, Tootie. Okay, look, let's start, let's start in Philadelphia when oh, Jimmy was born. Yeah. Just tell us a little about your growing up in Philly. Thank you for all the high praise that you gave me. Uh, some of it is not deserving. Uh, I w was around a lot of geniuses, but not many, you know. That word is used kind of a, too much. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie was one. 
and Charlie Parker, of course. And a lot of the others worked hard. Coltrane was a hard worker, and he became uh, an icon for our music. Uh, as far as being in Philadelphia, I'm in a family that had four surviving children. And uh, it was a back when a time when some of the kids were, my mother and father had children that died young at one year or childbirth or whatever because of uh, the medical attention that they gave people of color. Uh, but my sister survived and Percy was next and then myself and then Tootie was my younger brother. Now my sister, my father played the clarinet in the Elks Band in Philadelphia, the marching band, and my mother marched in the marching club with the same uniform and they would uh, uh, the marching club and the band, Quaker City. And, uh, you know, that was a time my, when my father and mother, they had so-called race records in the house. In other words, if you had recordings by black people, they called them race records. And uh, my father said that each one of us would have an opportunity to play music. Uh, my sister took the piano until she met boys. And you never heard of her playing nothing. <laughs> trying to keep up with the guys. She was trying to keep up with her. She's a beautiful girl. And then Percy came along and he started playing the violin in uh, junior high school. And uh, it wasn't too, uh, <laughs> how should I say, to play the violin in the ghetto and be a little skinny guy. Percy was a little skinny guy. And <laughs> it wasn't looked on as something that you should do. I think they considered him to be gay or something by playing the violin because, you know, that wasn't macho enough. But uh, then I came along with the saxophone. My father said, well, Jimmy, what you want to play? I said, well, I had heard Johnny Hodges and Benny Carter and people like that in my home, and I wanted to do what they did. And uh, I said, well, Pop, I want the alto saxophone. And then uh, nine years later, here comes my brother Tootie, and he started out playing the trombone in high school because the drummer had already taken the, he couldn't get on the drum set because somebody had the drums. And he played the trombone for a while. And he said it was, my sister said it was nasty because spit was coming out of it. <laughs> you take the valve and empty the spit. And my sister said, what is, oh, get out of here with that. So he ended up going to drums anyway. And he's the drummer in the family. But uh, Percy uh, became a Tuskegee Airman. And he's a second lieutenant and a pilot. <clears throat> However, he didn't get to, to go over to fight because the war ended. He had all his overseas equipment ready to go over 
and uh, the war ended, so he never got to that. I was playing in a band right out of high school, and incidentally, the high school, <clears throat> my mother and my father being an auto mechanic for a living, and my mother was a hairdresser, and at times we had a problem, we were on welfare. And uh, so I had a grandmother, and a, my father's mother and father lived in Wilmington, North Carolina. Now Wilmington, North Carolina became famous Michael Jordan. But I went to high school in Wilmington, North Carolina after I finished the junior high in Philly. And I used to go down to Wilmington in the winter and go to school and go back to Philly in the summer. And uh, you didn't, uh, if you never knew about this, I'll tell you a lot of people didn't know that the, the state law of North Carolina said that all black high schools would go to the 11th grade. And the white high schools, like New Hanover High School in Wilmington, went to the 12th grade. I've talked to people from Texas and everywhere. At least they had the same amount of grades. I don't know what it was about North Carolina. But <clears throat> maybe wit. you didn't go to school there. Yeah, well, did you finish in 11th grade too? No, Okay, well, I finished in 1943. And I finished in 11th grade, cap gown, the whole works. Never had a bit of algebra, uh, no geometry, no trigonometry, calculus, get out of here. I don't know what that is. But when my father sent me that saxophone down there, I said, this is it. This is for me. I was too small to play football, and I couldn't have been an athlete, and there wasn't too many opportunities. So when I got the saxophone, I said, this is it. And it's been it for me in my whole life. So <clears throat> when I finished, I went on the road in a band uh, out of Philadelphia, and we went back down south to play gigs. And then I went out in Omaha, Nebraska in 1945 in a dance band. And uh, that was my first time on the road. I think I had to be, oh, about 17, 18, because I finished high school, 16 in 11th grade, 16, I'm out of there. So, you know, that's, that's the beginnings. And since that time, a lot of things have happened, which uh, uh, we'll get to later. That's the beginning. Okay, that's growing up in Philly. Then, uh, let's see, that'll bring us up to bebop. And that was uh, gaining popularity in the United States, and Jimmy was certainly on the forefront of that. So, uh, second, second string. Oh, okay. But uh, I remember him on the records that uh, going back all my life, and uh, I know that uh, the recordings that he made with um, Dizzy and all of the other people he's worked with, uh, it was the forefront to me. Mm. So can we hear something <clears throat> about the, the bebop era well, in the United States? Well, I was at the, with Nat Toll's band, and we came here to Baltimore and played at the Royal Theater. 
Yeah, and uh, this is a side issue, but when we played there, I was with this band out in Nebraska called Nat Tolls, T-O-W-L-E-S, dance band. And uh, when we played at the Royal Theater, the headliner was Louis Jordan and his Timpany Five. And, you know, we couldn't go in this city in different places. So there was a woman that had a, in the back of the theater that served, you know, home-cooked food and stuff. And that's the first time I've ever seen anybody. Louis Jordan was, he was large in the community. He was like everything to people. And Louis Jordan, I remember one thing about him, <laughs> that when we went to this woman's house to eat, they had all this uh, beans and cornbread and all this. He took all that stuff. I never seen anybody do it before or after. He took all the food that was on his plate and mixed it up. Now, if he had beans here, collard greens here, he mixed it all up. And I said, ew! What's up with this guy? I mean, I never, I never seen nobody do that since. You know, I mean, you keep your beans over here, you have your collard greens here, and you have your potato salad, you have stuff separated. He mixed it all up. I thought about a pig, like slop. But, but the man, his music was incredible. In fact, Sonny Rollins has got all Louis Jordan's, me and him both. We got all his records now and put them out on CD. But he had a song, Beans and Cornbread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Beans and Cornbread had a fight. <laughs> Beans, not cornbread, out of sight. Cornbread said, that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'll be ready. I'll be ready tomorrow night. You want to know where they got rap music from, too? Yeah. Well, rap, that was Percy. Percy did that in the schoolyard. <laughs> you know, it's a, a call and response. That's an African thing. But uh, <clears throat> Philadelphia is cool, and I studied there when I, in the summer with a man named Paul Amati who played in the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know. But when I, you know, and then another man uh, who played like Benny Carter gave me some lessons. And I studied the saxophone. And uh, eventually, after playing with, when I was with Nat Tolls, Percy came out of the Air Force. And he says, hey, James, come on home because I met Dizzy Gillespie. I'm getting to the point you were talking about, the bebop. And I say, well, you know Dizzy? Because I had heard on the road, I was, went to Savannah, Georgia to play with Nat Tolls. And me and Billy Mitchell, saxophone player, kept putting money in the jukebox because they had a record called Swingnotism and Hootie Blues by Jay McShann. And it had Charlie Parker playing the saxophone on it. And I put a nickel in the jukebox. I said, man, come here and hear this. And we listen, and we love the way the saxophone. And then here comes the record with Dizzy and Bird, Hot House and Groovin' High. 
on the Gill label, red label, G-U-I-L-D. And so I had heard Dizzy and, and, and Bird, and I wanted to be like that. And Percy said he knew Dizzy. So I quit the band and came back to Philly because he said he was going to start playing bass. So he started studying on the GI Bill, and he studied the bass. And I found out that uh, Dizzy didn't even know his name. I ended up getting with Dizzy before him. But <clears throat> Dizzy called him Lieutenant. Because everybody, you look, I would walk down the street with Percy in Philadelphia, and Percy have on his olive coat and them pink pants and them bars on his shoulder. And man, all people jumped to attention. White guys way across the street. Percy wiped down. He was real cool. At ease, soldier. <laughs> so I was very proud of my brother being a Tuskegee Airman. And uh, the Dizzy Gillespie thing, uh, I got with Dizzy and, and uh, Howard McGee first. Mm -hmm. And he was a, uh, yeah, he was like West Coast Dizzy. And I got with him, and then later, Train and I got with Dizzy's band in 1949. And there's a picture in, in the, the book of us in the Reed section with Paul Gonzalez is on tenor, because Train and I playing alto. And we playing in the Apollo Theater in 1949. And you know who we are playing who was the star of that show? What are you doing New Year's, New Year's Eve? The Orioles. So I got to tell you one story. <laughs> uh, Specs Wright, I had gotten Specs Wright, a Philadelphia drummer with Dizzy Cause Teddy Stewart, who was going with Dinah Washington, split and went with Dinah and left in the middle of an engagement at the Earl Theater in Philadelphia. And uh, I told him, I, Dizzy, I said, man, Specs right. I got a drummer, read all your music and play all this. So Dizzy said, oh, tell him to come in. So he got, we got Specs right to play. So now when we're in Apollo, Specs right and Coltrane and myself, we come out at intermission, and all the girls is back there. Sonny Till, where's Sonny Till? They want the Oreos guys. And one chick says, Oh, that ain't nothing but them old beboppers. And when she said that, uh, and another girl say, Well, where's Sonny Till? And Speck say, I sent him to get my laundry. <laughs> and when he said that, this sister took an umbrella and hit him right in his head. And I told her, I say, Boy, you cannot mess with people's heroes. And it's the same today. Now, can you tell them rappers that they ain't listening to nothing? <laughs> when they hear Fitty, <laughs> they hear Fitty. I, I, I say, I, I need more than Fitty. I need a dollar. <laughs> Fitty. So it's the same thing. But, and Lester, Lester Young, who I, I knew very well, he would say, 
Everybody likes what they like, Prez. He was a philosopher, Lester Young. Everybody likes what they like. You can't make them. Like you, you folks like jazz, right? No, you wouldn't even be here. But you can't, they, we can't make you like Fiddy. <laughs> if you don't like him. I like Luda. <laughs> Ludacris. When I move, you move. Just like that. I can understand what he's saying. Some of them I can't understand. I got grandchildren and great-grandchildren, five great-grandchildren and five grandchildren. And I have to know something about what they like. I mean, you know, I don't have to like it. But Nas, I liked it when he sampled me. Yeah, One Love. He said that was one of the top 100 hip-hop songs of all time. I didn't mind that. That money was the same color as the bebop money. (laughs) In fact, it was heavier than the bebop money. I wish somebody else would sample me. Now, what I tell you about his humor, huh? That's the truth, man. Now, you know, I've heard a lot of musicians (laughs) describe their first meeting with Charlie Parker the first time they heard him play and yeah. it's been described as a <clears throat> a lightning bolt hit him yeah I got and, off the uh, track I got off the track but let me tell you about that picture you, you're talking about yeah Charlie Parker came to Philadelphia and uh, his horn was in the pawn shop so he borrowed my horn my alto and he left his brill heart white mouthpiece on there every night because he was com- commuting back to New York. He wouldn't stay in Philadelphia. So I would take my horn up to the downbeat on 11th Street in Philly and uh, listen to all this music every night. And I said, Whew, Charlie Parker's playing my horn. I started, and Miles, Max Roach, Duke Jordan, and Tommy Potter were in that group. So I took it up there every night. I took it up there every night. And I take it back home. And I go in the cellar in Mom's house. And I take out the horn. And I try it. And I say, Dag, Charlie Parker played all that stuff right through here. It ain't there. I thought it would be in there. I said, I know all that stuff is in this horn because it went right through. I'm listening at it all night. But it wasn't. And I realized then I had to get it for myself because he'd leave the mouthpiece and everything. And I really uh, loved everything he was playing. And uh, what happens was that occasion, you know, a, a kid had gotten her legs amp, a woman, a girl, I got legs amputated by a streetcar accident. And I had this benefit to play. Earl Bostic was on there, and he had hits. And Charlie Parker uh, asked, I said, Bird, would you come and play this benefit with me, man, for this little girl that got her, her legs amputated? He said, yeah, B, I'll play. So he came and played on that concert. And that's the picture that you were talking about in the book. And uh, 
train is sitting there. He smoked cigarettes. See, and I used to tell my students when I was teaching at Queens College that uh, you see, see how train is looking at bird? You see, the saxophone didn't start with train. It's a continuum in every generation. That's why I named the book what I did. I walked with giants. Because the giant of the bebop generation to me, since I didn't, Charlie Parker didn't live, he only was 34 when he passed away. Dizzy Gillespie lived to be about 75 or something like that. And I was around Dizzy his whole life. He was the master teacher in my estimation because Dizzy not only could play uh, outstanding trumpet, but he had small groups, he had big bands, he could write arrangements for his big band. He could, uh, uh, he's played with the symphonies, I've heard him with symphony orchestra. He could do the whole, run the whole thing, you know what I'm saying? And the big band is our symphony orchestra. And I love to, to write for big bands. Uh, my latest is, is a thing I wrote for the Seattle Jazz Repertory Orchestra called The Endless Search. And that is an extended piece that I wrote. And uh, I'm doing one now for the August Wilson uh, Center in Pittsburgh. And I have to have this piece ready by April 2nd. Uh, that's another extended piece. I got, so after writing just compositions and stuff, I wanted to extend my compositions and write suites and larger works. I wrote one symphony when I was teaching at Queens College. But I think in the book I maybe have 15, I mentioned 15 larger works that I've done over the years. And that I did one for Joe Henderson at Lincoln Center, five-part suite called In Praise. You know, so I, when I wanted to do that, uh, Mike, I went back and studied with a, a man from Leipzig, Germany, by the name of Rudolf Schramm. And uh, he taught me how to extend my music, not just for a small group and compositions and uh, tunes, to writing larger works. And I studied with him for two years. And that's interesting that uh, you studied, you were taking lessons from someone. Right. I, you know, I thought about this before, back when Barry Harris told me that he took lessons, still. And, you know, you think some of these musicians that uh, are, are past that, that there's nothing that they could learn, but uh, it's not true. As you see, Jimmy mm -hmm. is still taking lessons now. Well, and... A milestone of your career, you said in the book, was uh, the African-American uh, suite of evolution. Well, I wrote that when I was studying Rudolf Schramm. Mm -hmm. He told me how to write for a ragtime, how to write a ragtime piece, how to write a, a, a spiritual or gospel piece. You know, so in that suite of evolution, I started out in Africa, you know. And uh, everybody here has probably saw Roots. 
But I started out like that. The first was uh, the African, African percussion and all of that, and the field hollers, like the people that were brought here as slaves, and they had the field hollers that went into the, the gospel and all of that. So I followed the whole evolution to that date, up to, to the avant-garde music like Ornette and them came in with. So in doing so, it, uh, it took a long time to, to write that piece. And I got it performed, I think, two or three times. Is it something recorded? Is well, no. Recorded? It's not recorded. Uh, there's a, a gentleman in New York who ran the Jazzmobile. is working on that now. He's trying to get that recorded. Because I played it for the Jazzmobile. I played it at Town Hall in New York. And then I played it at uh, Monterey Jazz Festival. And I played it in Winnipeg, Canada. I went up there, and they got a choir for me and the strings, because it, it has strings and a choir, African percussion, big band. So it has all of these entities to make the evolution of the music. So we could look for it under the title Afro-American Suite of Evolution. Well, if I can... If it ever if comes they ever, Yeah, if it ever comes out. Dave Bailey, who ran... The, the Jazzmobile. He's been working on trying to get that recorded, as well as a uh, Frank Foster piece that he wrote, uh, 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 Lake Placid Suite. The Jazzmobile played up at Lake Placid when, when the Americans finally won the hockey and all that. We were up there, you know. Uh, so. He's trying to get some of those things that were written during the Jazzmobile uh, heyday. Incidentally, Jazzmobile is still going on. I think it's 35 or 40 years now. They play music in the streets of, of New York all the time. But he's trying to get all of those things. And another one called Four Black Immortals, written by Ernie Wilkins, was about uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Paul Robeson and four people. So uh, Dave Bailey is trying his best to get some funds to get those things recorded. But only uh, the Afro American Suite was only performed three times. Mm. But there's a piece in the Afro American Suite that I played and recorded called The Voice of the Saxophone, which is written for Coleman Hawkins. The bebop section was, was dedicated to Dizzy. You see, each section, the swing section was dedicated to who? Count Basie, man. Count Basie, Coleman Hawkins, too. Uh-uh. I'm talking about the swing band was, was, well, you know, they had others. Nobody don't mention Jimmy Lunsford. Jimmy Lunsford had a dance band. It was terrific. So we had a lot going on. You know, the big band was in vogue when I grew up, so I went to the Earl Theater in Philadelphia. If Lionel Hampton was there, <laughs> Ethel, you've been to the Earl. <laughs> if Lionel Hampton was there, I'd go up there and stay all day. And I just got a, a, somebody just told me a story, oh, yesterday, that I had never heard. Because I said, Arnett Cobb, Saxophone player with Lionel Hampton was a preacher on the saxophone. 
And Joe Harris, who's still around, he's my age, a drummer from Pittsburgh that was with Dizzy's band, with Ray Brown and all them Pittsburgh people. Joe told me yesterday that he went to the Apollo and heard on that cop, and he said with some sisters on the front row that act like they was having a religious spasm, like, like they had felt God when he played. Oh, Lord, Lord. Oh, my God. On that cop, I say, I never heard that, Joe. He say, yeah, well, I read your book. You didn't have that in there. I say, well, I didn't get to you before I wrote it, but I know Arnett Cobb is in there. And Arnett Cobb was a, a house-rocking saxophone player. I mean, he tear the house down, man. Tenor player from Texas. And I had the pleasure of making a record in uh, Nuremberg, Germany, with... Three generations of tenor. It was Arnett Cobb, and I'm next 10 years younger than him, and Joe Henderson. There's a two-volume two uh, record out of us in, in Germany. But Arnett was, uh, you know, he was on crutches, and he had claps along and everything. But, uh, but he still could, could holler on that tenor. So that's another giant, you see. Uh, the, the whole idea... Is being around all these people growing up is incredible life, and to be here and be eighty-four years old, and all my guys, Miles, Ray Brown, Mal Waldron, Train, they all were born same year I was, nineteen twenty-six. Uh, Randy Weston, Lou Donaldson. And Tony Bennett and myself, we still here. But a, a lot of them, Ma, uh, Melba Liston, she was born in 1926 also. That was a good musical year. Miles and Train, that's a lot right there. And uh, Ray Brown, that ain't bad. I was in around some giants, man. Yes, you were. <laughs> and... Uh... Jimmy is so well-known and so well-loved that when he did turn 80 years old, he had 10 birthdays in the same year all over the country. All wanted to have a birthday for Jimmy Heath. Ooh. Yeah, my next one is at uh, Lincoln Center, the 85th, September the 24th of next year. Yeah, Winton and them will give me a shot. Now... Okay, we got through to bebop here, and then uh, as we spoke a little bit about John Coltrane, uh, back when he was playing alto in Jimmy's band, uh, how long did that last? My band? Yeah. Oh, it lasted until Howard McGee came along, and uh, he had a bigger name, and uh, we went on the road to, to the Paradise Theater in Detroit. And the Apollo and two or three gigs. And then the, the book got lost somewhere in Inglewood Station in Chicago or something. All my music. So the band ended. And right after that, I got with Dizzy's band. But see, when I, when I was with the Howard McGee band, we went to Detroit, the Paradise Theater. And the headliner of the show was Illinois Jacket. 
and Sarah Vaughn, second, and the Howard McGee and his big band, next. That's when I met all the Detroit guys like Barry Harris and Tommy Flanagan around there then, because the, Detroit was another mecca and the, and the for Jones the music. Family, which I didn't meet them then. Very much similar to your oh, family. Yeah. Detroit had the Jones family and Philadelphia mm -hmm. had the Heaths. Yeah, it's true. But so many great musicians came out of both of those cities in that generation. It's just hard. It's mind-boggling how many great musicians there were all within the same 10 years or so of each other. Well, you know, there's another city they, they always leave out. And I always insist that you don't leave out Pittsburgh. Now, when you talk about Pittsburgh, okay, yeah. Kenny Clark. The first bebop drummer, Art Blakey, Joe Harris, who I just talked to yesterday, uh, Earl Garner, Billy Eckstein, okay, Father Hines, Mary Lou Williams, Stan, the Turrentine brothers, Stanley and Tommy, George Benson, Roy Eldridge, correct. Pittsburgh, Ahmed Jamal. You know, you can't get many better than that now. Philadelphia had to come up some to get with that, to me. Now, I'd like to hear what you have to say about uh, a few years later on when uh, Ornette Coleman came around and they started something they were calling free jazz. Now, tell us what you think about that. Well, you know, uh, Ornette, what I found Ornette was good about him, he didn't forget to swing because his notes were dissonant and it was something we had never heard. And uh, they had different opinions about that, but he had smiling Billy back there on the drums. Billy Higgins, one of the greatest drummers of all time. He didn't even play loud. He played so even to everybody would be shaking their head when Billy Higgins played. And, he, and Ornette had him. So whatever he played, as dissonant as it was, it was still swinging. Now, a lot of, he influenced a lot of people to go in his direction. And a, a young man came up to me, he said, man, you know, I could get a saxophone in the morning and play it at night. I said, I wish you had told me that 50 years ago, because I've been practicing every day, haven't we, Whit? We've been practicing all the time. I said, it ain't that easy, you know. It's not that easy, you know. And some people who play in the freestyle can get something out of it, but everybody can't. It just uh, allowed you to be free from the harmonic uh, structure of a song. So uh, I talked to him last week. Uh, Hamiet Blewett. You know, ever heard of Hamiet Blewett? Oh, yeah. Well, Blewett told me something a few years back. He said, man, I don't need no piano player in back of me because they use up all the notes. And when I play one, it's already been played. 
So I understand that some people don't, you know, I did that with Miles without the piano. We had a group called the Symphony Sid All-Stars in 
I spent a lot of time on the piano trying to uh, come up with different voicings and different melodies because everything is on the on the 88. We, Larry Willis, we were just talking about that. Ten against 88. <laughs> That's what it is. But there's 88 keys, man, and all those octaves, and all of this music is there from way back from Bach, Beethoven, everybody, and they still still getting music out of that. So that's why I spent a lot of time writing and practicing. But uh, Coltrane is a different animal. See, he wrote, when I had the band, Coltrane wrote one arrangement, and it was on Lover Man. And he wrote such a beautiful counter line to the melody that I said, John, why don't you write some more for the band, man? Oh, Jim, I ain't got time to write. I'm, I'm practicing. See, that was his, his life was to practice. And uh, Juanita, who became Naima, I, I knew her when her name was Juanita. Uh, she said John was 90% saxophone. So she only got 10% of his being. And that's his wife. So that was his uh, destiny. That was him. John practiced all the time. When he came, you know, from High Point, you know, we graduated the same. I, I learned that later. We graduated the same in June of 43. He was in High Point, North Carolina, and I was in Wilmington. So he was still... 11th grade, <laughs> and you imagine uh, going, just being, what we did coming out of the 11th grade, I mean, it's, it's incredible that we are able to do what we did. And what he did with the saxophone, he left at the age of 40. And I'm 84, I've been here 44 more years than John. And I've done 44 interviews about John. Everybody wants to know about John. You see what I'm saying? For 44 years, I've been giving John Coltrane. I say, look, read the one I gave the last time. I ain't going to say nothing different. I ain't going to lie. The man was a... Now, he's close to being a genius. John Coltrane was a... You know, when... Uh, well, this is no not a musical audience to tell you what he would do. But I mean, for example, he said he he practiced giant steps for two years. On that one, he practiced. When he said that, oh Jim, you know, Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster, all the old guys, they play in D flat. He said, I'm gonna practice in D flat. He practiced six months in D flat, and if you ever hear. Uh, two bass hit by Miles Davis is a fast D flat blues. Nobody played no more than John Coltrane on a D flat blues in the history of the saxophone on tenor. So that, that was his that was his life. He wanted to, you know, he just wanted to be the best at what he was, and he achieved. A, a high curve for anybody to try to come to. And uh, 
we could, you know, I'm gonna tell the whole book, but uh, we should we should get to see what people wanna know. Yeah, excuse me. Right? Right. Um, I'm Judy Cooper. I work here at the library, and I want to say. Let's give her a hand because she's responsible for all of this. I want to say thank you to Jimmy and to Mike Binsky. I don't know if you introduced yourself, Mike, but um, Mike is really the person right. who's responsible for bringing Jimmy Heath to Baltimore. And so let's give them both a big round of applause. Uh. Uh, Jimmy's on a tight schedule. He has to catch a train about 9.30. So we want to give you a chance to ask some questions and buy some books and, and have a chance to talk to him personally. So this is your chance. Um, I'll pass the microphone around. <coughs> Who's first? Well, there's uh, some people here from the Left Bank Left Jazz Bank. Society. Yeah. And... Uh, they saved in the in the sixties, you know, it was Jimmy Heath that came here, and uh, with these people started the Left Bank Jazz Society. As a matter of fact, he's right here on the hat from Left Bank. Yeah. That's him. And uh, I, I was a liaison in uh, New York when they he wanted got, he a got certain all the musicians from New York to come down here, and that's what got Left Bank started, Left and Bank. that became one of the best jazz gigs in the world. True. And uh, True. I know there's many of you here tonight, and uh, you did a great job, a great job. I didn't do nothing. Well. I just, you know, called up the guys they wanted to have down here, and I, you know, I was a person that knew all the musicians, and I could call Kenny Durham or Freddie Hubbard or whoever they wanted. Hank Mobley or whoever they wanted. And, and there's some old friends of Jimmy's here tonight oh, yeah. that wanted to say something. So uh, Larry Willis is here who uh, recorded with Jimmy Heath. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had some question or some subject. You're not going to talk about any Why substance abuse. <laughs> 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 That's a new name. You're right. Yeah. Now, when it got out in the suburbs, it's a substance, substance abuse. Substance abuse. When it was in my neighborhood, there was a dope fiend and a drug right, addict. Right. <laughs> well, one of the highlights of my life was, uh, number one, uh, making a record with you, playing on one of your records and uh, playing with you and Slide Hampton and Ron Carter and Arthur Taylor in the Continuum Band mm -hmm. for a minute. And, uh, you know, I write, I'm a piano player, and one of the things that has always fascinated me about you has been your ability to write and write things that not only are hip songs, things that people can remember, okay, melodies that, that, that people can retain, but you also write music that is intelligent for a thinking jazz musician to want to play. And uh, I just want, I want you to know that. And, and uh, uh, where did, 
that all start. Say that again. Uh, Next I question. Said, where did that that where did that all start? How did it you know come about? I think it came about from being around at the time when uh, they had a lot of bands uh, and a lot of uh, great uh, composers being around them. One of my favorites is McKinley Dorham. He's the, I think he's the romantic writer of the bebop generation. And I record a lot of his music, No End, Escapade, uh, None Shall Wander, all these beautiful, well, everybody knows Una Mas, you know, because it's got a, a, a funky beat. But, uh, but other than that, he was the, and being around Tad Dameron, and being around uh, Gil Fuller, uh, Dizzy, um, and Horace Silver. Ooh. <laughs> Horace Silver had the knack of writing hip music that people liked. Yeah, yeah. And still musicians liked to play those songs. Because that's the, that's the hardest thing to do, is to find uh, a composition that is not written down to the people but written at a level that they can appreciate it and the musicians still can appreciate it. And that's the hardest thing. And, uh, you know, I've been able to do it with a couple of compositions. You've done I think more one, than a couple, that, man. Yeah, but, well, I think people like the song I wrote during the CBS days, A Time and a Place. Yeah. You know. They used to and play they, that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so that's, a, that's the challenge. Yeah. So you have you have to face that same challenge. Well, yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> well, you you've written a symphony and everything. I got your uh, your bio. To <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you you're on it and been on it for a long time. And uh, yeah. Whit Williams is someone else that's recorded with uh, Jimmy Heath, and uh, I'm sure you can if you if you're interested in these CDs, uh, you can always contact me. And as Judy said, I don't think I didn't introduce myself, for those of you who don't know me, the one or two people here. Uh, my name's Michael Binsky, and uh, I, I have something called Jazz Artist Management, and there's a, uh, uh, a paper outside at the desk where his books are, and if you want to get on my mailing list, you can just put your name on that, and uh, I can let you know about the next concert that I produce. But uh, Witt, I know, has something to say to Jimmy. And also, after that, John Tegler right next yes, to him from WEAA. His brother back there raised his yeah. hand to him. Well, first, first of all, I'd like to say uh, <clears throat> there's an affirmation I learned from a friend of mine here in Baltimore named Roy McCoy. And that affirmation is divine order. And <clears throat> as to what that has to do with Jimmy, First of all, we've been friends since around 1963. <laughs> Very good friends. Yes, right. Real friends. We don't have to see one another every day. Now, in reference to the music, I have in my book almost all of Jimmy's compositions that have been written for a large band. And I was fortunate enough, 
No, I'm sorry. I was blessed enough to have Jimmy on my only recording for a big band and also Slot Hampton. I had talked about that for over 20 years and or more. <laughs> and we were finally able to do it and so far we've gotten as far as the rating is concerned for whatever this is worth four and a half stars out of five from Downbeat. And Jimmy and Mona have been very close friends to us and we've tried to be as close as we can to them for many years and I just appreciate the friendship and I restate that again friendship that's very important and I'm glad I learned that growing up as a kid and I want to hope that Jimmy experiences and his family divine order in their lives for many years mm -hmm. thank you thank you just give, it, just give it to uh, John Tagler. John Tagler from WEAA. Thank you. Uh, since you had Jimmy starting jazz, I wanted to ask him, when was the last time he had lunch with Buddy Bolden? <laughs> <laughs> now, That's if you say Taylor. Louis Armstrong. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, because I, I live around the corner. Around the corner from Louis Armstrong's house, and and I was as uh, a picture in the book that you'll see. I was able to when I was teaching at Queens College to assemble all the musicians at the Armstrong House in Corona, where I lived, to for that when it was designated an, a landmark, his home, mm -hmm. and I was able to get. You'll see it, Roy Eldridge. Jab Old Smith, Dizzy, Winton, Faddis, Red Rodney. Uh, all I had to do is call these guys up and say, well, I'm, they're going to name Louis House. And they all showed up. Illinois Jacket, uh, Dexter Gordon, uh, Art Farmer. Uh, it was a, the pictures in the book. But I was able to do that at the Louis Armstrong House and Archive because I was teaching at Queens College. Now and Queens College has char are in charge of that house and I archive. I remember when you brought the Queens College big band on board the Norway. Yeah, my, my big band. That was marvelous. One thing I did want to ask, Jimmy, mm -hmm. I grew up, of course, pretty much in the same era as you did. I had the good fortune of one of my best friends in high school was the younger brother of Max Roach's first wife. So we got snuck into clubs in Philly and New York and this and that. And I got to see at a very young age a lot of your contemporaries. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have always been fascinated with the transition of many very good musicians. You talked about Howard McGee. Mm -hmm. Howard McGee, to me, originally was a swing trumpeter who right. transitioned right. into the bop era, mm -hmm. as Hawk did, and, mm -hmm. and several others. Talk about that a little bit. Well, <clears throat> they were smart enough to know that there was a new movement. Coleman Hawkins had J.J. Johnson playing with him and Miles and people, because he, uh, some of the other older musicians were negative about the new movement in music called bebop. 
but they were open enough to realize there was something there and they were interested in in the music. So I think Howard McGee, like you said, he played with uh, Charlie Barnett or something, one of the first black guys to play with Charlie Barnett's band, and uh, Georgie All, saxophone player from Canada, you know, so they did come out of the swing era. Uh, like, uh, so when they heard the new music that Charlie Parker and Dizzy and Monk and those people had started, they wanted to be on board. I just think that they wanted to investigate and they were curious and they found something in there that was was desirable and they were able to uh, make the transition into a more advanced way of improvising. Yeah, it's. I, I was interested from several points of view because Terry Gibbs has been a friend for many, many years. And Terry tells the story on one interview that I did with him about being in the Army and seeing Bird in New York on leave mm -hmm. for the first time. He said, John, at first to me it sounded like Chinese funeral mm -hmm. music which is the way it impressed a lot of swing musicians to start off with. But he, nobody today could be more of a devotee of both Bird and Diz than Terry Gibbs is. He just adored uh, both of them. I want to close and give somebody else an opportunity simply by saying you and I grew up in the same city, Philadelphia, etc., and I've known of Jimmy Heath a lot of years before I ever got to know Jimmy Heath personally. And I just want to thank you for a heck of a lot of enjoyment that you and your music and your brothers have, have brought me. Thank you very much. And there's a gentleman here in the back that I know wants to say something. And, and look, uh, John Tegler is putting together a jazz cruise in, uh, in September uh, 11. So if you're interested in that, you can get in touch with me and I can tell you about it. Uh, the, the last concert I produced here in Baltimore was coincidentally with Tootie Heath, another giant who played here at the UB Blake Center just this last uh, July. So uh, get on my mailing list and I'll let you know about the next thing. Uh, this man over here would like to ask something or say something. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't need a microphone. No, he um, I'm a newly named Open Society Institute fellow, and I just wanted to ask um, Mr. Brother Heath, how, how does he feel, and does he have any concern about the younger African-American musicians and community not really viewing acoustic jazz as a viable form of music for them to pursue? and unfortunately not even seeing any cultural or ethnic relationship even to the music to the point of shunning it while other cultures, predominantly white and Asian, throughout the world are embracing it. And do you think it may be a, a chance that the folk that created African folk, black folk, might be erased from that connection? How do you, do you see that and do you have any concern about that? Yes, I definitely have concern. As a teacher at, at Queens College for 10 years, uh, my students would be 90 to 95% other ethnic groups. 
Asians and white kids, they love this music and they value it. And I feel a deep hurt that people like Dizzy and Louis Armstrong and people who went through so much to make this America's number one art form as far as music is concerned. Don't forget that music that you hear Bach and Beethoven, that's European music. This is African-American music, American. I just came back from Taichung uh, in Taiwan and we played outside a concert. Antonio Hart, who's my student, who's a great saxophone player. <clears throat> we played, and it was 22,000 people in the park listening. The government put on this concert. And the little kids, 10 years old, were talking about uh, he wrote a note to Antonio and said, Mr. Hart, when you play, it touches me. A 10-year-old kid, you don't I've get that here. They were dancing like it was a rock concert. We sold so many CDs, I never had people line up to buy CDs. So now there's been on, on uh, the TV the last week, they had a program about China. And one of the little Chinese kids say, when are the American people going to learn how to speak Chinese so we can talk with them in our language? Did you hear that? Or what's the lady that has that program where Jennings, Peter Jennings used to have on Channel 7? The, the blonde-haired uh, new Diane, Diane Sawyer. She had all week she had about China. Well, they like our music. But we can't get these people to like our music in this country. That is another reason. That is another reason. I agree. I agree. We, we had a program in New York put on Jazzmobile a few years back, I mean 15 or 20 years. It was funded by the government. And we went to play in schools, intermediate schools, in New York City. And the kids, was, they were ecstatic about the music. They said, oh, they don't send nothing in here but string quartets and stuff. They never send jazz in here. Oh, oh there's Rupert Stone of Howard okay. University. I uh, like to say this. For people who, let me say, we're from the same time span, so I'm, I'm very familiar with you. Uh, if you go to Philadelphia and you get on Broad Street, it divides north, it goes north from South Philly. And what happens is, in those early years when you grew up, there were like dual cultures because African-Americans in North Philadelphia didn't have the same backgrounds or likes as the people in South Philadelphia. You're from South Philly, right? No, I was born in West Philly. West Philly, okay. Now, the reason I, the reason I bring that up is this. 
people coming out of Philadelphia will not realize or know that there was a culture of music in South Philly very different from what you would hear in North Philly because I recall how I drove in my car way up North Philly just to hear Bud Power play. And, uh, and I think that what's good about it is your ex explanation of how various people come in contact with others and they become a symbol for development. And if you read up on Coltrane, he talks about how you went to the library and, and pull out classical books for him to practice out of. No, we, 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 we used to go to hear Stravinsky records together. Yeah. And, and classical and, music, Western classical music. We used oh, to go to hear the, the records because we didn't have them. And, uh, Fill up your library. Right. And what happens is people who write about jazz uh, don't write about environments. And uh, Philadelphia has a history of just producing so many people out of the environment. Uh, for instance, take Philly Joe Jones, who was a streetcar operator. Well, he was one of the first to, to, to integrate the streetcars. And he, when he went down in the Italian neighborhood, they tried to get on the train, on the trolley, and kick his butt. Yeah. They had to have the police on there. Yeah, but this is my point. He would go on the weekend all the way up to Brooklyn to have sessions with Max Roach. Now, I was like, can you imagine that someone listening to him on recordings would never know what he actually did to become the person that he, that he became? And you played a great role with a lot of people, thank you. I think we, uh, we're short of time. Could I ask one more question, Jimmy? Oh, okay. I, I wasn't old yeah. enough to go into the Madison Club when you were coming over there. But I do remember the unique thing about uh, Jimmy Heath was that the, mus the mu musicians were in town. Mickey Fields, Witt, and the others would be allowed to sit in, which means that you influence one or two or three generations of people. How can that concept be carried on? Musicians now come in, big name one, and they're on the train or plane within 15 minutes after they get here. How can you, you know, merge or share your talents with others, even if they do the last set. You know, you used to have a little jam session with Mickey and the others. Yeah, so, Mickey uh, kicked my butt, too. <laughs> Some guys don't want to be, they don't trust themselves to be, uh, let people come up and play. You know, they got, we got a lot of ego Stravinsky's out here. Ego. They think the world started with them. I told you about his humor. Funny and, guy. You know, but people, God gave a lot of people talent. And in this give one, that's why, you know, I say, okay. They mentioned the same people over and over and over. That's cool. But there's some new ones out here. Um, let's give a big round of applause.